Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues. And that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So this is another installment in our reading and talking around William Blake's The Proverbs of Hell. And that's just the beginning. There is a side of you that's really pissed off and wants to, like, bring a sword against your father. (laughs) And then there's a part of you that uh, loves everybody like a lamb and just wants to hand out uh, daffodils on the street to everyone. That's what Freud, right? Freud's two major centers of instinct, Eros and and, and Donatos. Oh. Death and destructive impulse, and then the erotic, loving, generative one. But is it, I, I think of Freud as saying that if you express your erotic side perfectly, then you'll always be happy. Because mm-hmm. two, Eros and Thanatos are alloyed, that you know you can't separate them, they're, they're like uh, twisted around one another. Mm. Um, so, yeah, through. Eros, or through sex, sexuality, you can work out your destructive impulses, but you need to find an erotic practice that can channel Thanatos, that can, you know, um, include Thanatos in order to be um, healthy and balanced, relatively free and light. So is Freud advocating aspects of sexual congress outside of sort of the normative I don't know, um, heterosexual positions or, you know, any sexual. I he... Well, he was open. He writes about it in um, The Wolfman. I'm... It's like uh, Norman Mailer said, well, I had to stab my wife because if you uh, repress these uh, energies, it can be very dangerous for oneself. You know, you can get cancer from repressing anger so uh, therefore i had to stab her and you know he almost killed her he was like an inch from her heart i think but i think freud did not thought that it was more of an energetic thing so um the choreography of the act mattered less that it's um tapping into certain energies huh. um and that can occur in all sorts of forms and positions and 
Sounds like it's more like self-knowledge. I mean, I feel this about myself that I've never figured out what my, what's the word, uh, you know, uh, what my sexuality really is. You know, what my particular fetish, I think is the word I'm searching for, is. I mean, I've had intimation. Like, I think that I'm a um, voyeur. I mean, in a kind of literal sense. It's one of my problems with living up here in the country uh, for the last year under the quarantine is you can't really wireize much here. And, you know, when you're walking down the street in New York City, you're kind of looking at people all the time and you're kind of speculating about them. And they're a little bit kind of putting on a show for you, most of them. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that you get off on sort of doing girl watching? Yeah, I guess that is what I'm saying. Come to yeah. think. And maybe a little boy watching, a little, you know, mild boy watching. <laughs> yeah, they got it. What, um, if I may ask, Andrew, what was Freud's take on masturbation? Like self-pleasuring. <laughs> In other words, you know, having uh, arrows, but, you know. He thought it was, it. Uh, thought it was very healthy. Oh, really? And I mean, you know, if it became um, neurotically compulsive, that that wasn't so great. But, you do it on the subway. You know, <laughs> that that's pathological. There's something going on there. But he thought that uh, as a autoeroticism is a part of human health, and um, that was good. And and not to be, um, he was really against um, parents or any adults interfering. With masturbatory um, experiments with their kids, they caught huh. them, and it was very a wrong idea to um, moralize at that moment to shame. Oh but that, yeah, that, that could have lasting negative consequences. Mm, that's Which a, seems that's true. He said, "You know, cease and desist if you're an adult. Just okay." Well, well I mean, uh, as Blake says, "No bird soars too high." If he soars with his own wings. And we're picking up where we left off. Continuing our discussion of Blake's Proverbs of Hell, which is part of his book, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. The last one we did was No Bird Soars Too High. That's right. No Bird Soars Too High. We were full of ideas about birds soaring. I know, and we did, and we just kind of skimmed the cream, too. (laughs) I think you you even had a follow-on idea, as I recall, Sparrow, that you didn't get a chance. Yeah, yeah. I know, it's been drifted out of my mind, whatever it was. Lately, it's funny because there's this one, the busy bee has no time for sorrow, is the one we did a few five before that. And lately, I've been kind of fascinated with the idea i have this theory that bees are flying higher than they ever have this year this is Uh the year 2021 the year of high flying bees which my wife says is completely untrue there are these carpenter bees that always have a nest in the um, you know eaves of our house but i never noticed them before because i never really noticed nature before this year because i wasn't stuck in the country forever because there wasn't a pandemic. But anyway, there, it sort of combines no bird soars too high and the busy bee has no time for sorrow. My insight that bees are have just sort of taken off. They've stopped believing they have to just hover around the ground and they're ready to go 
you know, into like the outer space of bees up to the mm. 20, well, they 30 may, feet. Yeah, they may need to get up higher because the life of bees is under threat. And so they need more perspective. They got to get up higher. Or they, escape. Escape yeah. whatever the... I remember that during the Bush administration, Bush 2, there was a really creepy head of DOJ... But the, but the story was that he would invite his acolytes to show up at the office at 6.30 or 7 or some insane time early in the morning to do uh, prayer, but also to sing, also to do song. Mm -hmm. And one of his songs was, uh, the, the refrain for the song was, <laughs> Um, in relation to his historic moment, that the eagle has never soared so high. Hmm. The eagle, yeah. you know, that at this moment, the eagle is soaring at this, like, unbelievable, never-before-seen um, um, height. Yeah. Well, you're referring to the former Attorney General, one John Ashcroft. Right, John. Ashcroft. Oh, he was very religious, Mother. right? Yeah. Christian, evangelical Christian. Uh. And I was wondering about the bees if they're flying higher. If this is true, because they sense the coming of the locust. Oh, <laughs> they're rising up to meet the locust, or trying to avoid the locust. The cicadas, the, you mean? I'm sorry, the cicadas. I did have one, like, I, I believe, a sort, at least for me, a real insight. And that is in relation to hell and in relation to heaven. And I realized that, um, that in the architecture of, like, below ground, what is under you and what is above you, what we're in, you know, we're in the sky, really. But, you know, what is above you is the sky. I realized that that it corresponds to a temporal identification also, and that is that literally the past is always underfoot, namely uh -huh. that things arise out of the earth, they're born, they do well, they do bad, they go sideways, they go blah, 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 and then snap, they die, and then you go back to the earth. So the birth, so that the earth is the repository of the past. And then, so then the corresponding, what is, what is above the earth is tied up not only with the present, but also with the sense of futurity of the future. Interesting. I don't know. I mean, it, it, but it is a fact that the past is beneath us, you know? And uh, the idea of auguries being in the sky. My father, who had been a sailor in the Navy, except that he never actually went on a boat. He was in the Naval Air Force. But nonetheless, he would quote the line, red skies at night, sailors delight, red skies in the morning, sailors mourning, meaning that uh, you can predict the, the weather, the future of the weather by the uh, color of the sky. So, and I think, I mean, in a sense, astrology is doing something similar, using uh, the, the the heavenly bodies up above us to predict the future. Hmm. 
Here we are. Let's read our next proverb. Andrew, would you like to read it? Certainly, Sam. Thank you for calling on me. <laughs> Dead body revenges not injures. Thing that comes to mind maybe is uh, is there an emphasis on um, revenging when you're alive? If you have to right some wrong, the Christian conceit perhaps is being looked at through a lens of suspicion, and that conceit is the uh, the notion that uh, you can uh, do your best work after you die in your spiritual form um, in heaven or purgatory. Now, in purgatory is where I mean, you stay in purgatory. The soul stays in purgatory, according to Catholic theology, uh, until all of the ways that you've been wrong are um, righted, especially if someone takes your life, right? Yeah, that oh, I see. Right, right. Before you're able to ascend to heaven. And is is Blake taking issue with this this notion that there's life after death? And hmm. sub things ha- substance substantive things can happen after one dies. Well, I mean, he's saying a dead body, so he's not uh, making a case against the soul or. I don't know what a ghost is, but a ghost, I guess, is a disembodied soul. Seems like he's discussing the body itself, not the person. I was just reading this uh, Wikipedia entry for Blake, and uh, they describe him as a believing Christian. So I guess even though his ideas were radical in their time, he still, I guess, accepted some notion of uh, eternal life and... I mean, if uh, you read it on Wikipedia, yeah. I mean, that's a gold standard, dude. <laughs> I mean, uh, maybe a gold standard. It's the, also the only standard, and and also, you know, I read this other uh, paragraph in Wikipedia on the Blake page. Blake's first biographer, Alexander Gilchrist, records that in June 1780, Blake was walking towards Bassire's shop in Great Queen Street when he was swept up by a rampaging mob that stormed Newgate Prison. The mob attacked the prison gates with shovels and pickaxes, set the building ablaze, and released the prisoners inside. Blake was reportedly in the front rank of the mob during the attack. The riots, in response to a parliamentary bill revoking sanctions against Roman Catholicism, became known as the Gordon Riots. Anyway... So uh, here's a case of possibly of uh, Blake uh, exacting revenge of some kind. <laughs> uh huh. Maybe he yeah. was in favor of certain kinds of revolutionary revenge. Well, I mean, uh, the biographer says swept up. So, you know, it could have been a happenstantial thing and. Somebody said, "Oh, we're going to liberate debtors." So it's a, it's I'm not sh- I'm not sure. I mean, it's difficult to ascribe to an event. You know, we don't want to overweight it. Yeah, it just came to mind. You know, it happened to me. I don't know if I've discussed this in these podcasts. When I was in Athens, I was walking down the street, and there was an angry demonstration marching down the street, all men shouting something, raising their fists. And I joined the demonstration, and I asked a few people around me, like, what are we in favor of? What are we against? And nobody spoke any English, so I just stayed, stayed with it, you know. And I mean, we didn't set any prisons on fire, but, you know, it was a situation very similar to apparently what happened to Blake. What if it was a, a, a movement in favor of something morally abhorrent? I know. I mean, I was taking a... Uh, a gamble. 
some, <laughs> sort, of, some sort of xenophobic. <laughs> yeah. There could have been. A, I mean, I felt that the people around me were decent, hardworking people. You know, it was a kind of a. I, I was making a, a sort of intuitive judgment of what do I agree with these sort of people? Sure. And also, it was just fun. It was like a fun anecdote that I can tell the rest of my life. The times that I, the time that I was in this demonstration, that I don't know what I was demonstrating for. <laughs> Uh-huh. For a moment, you felt as though you'd been swe uh, swept up into the polis of Athens, that you were an Athenian patriot. I was a temporary Athenian, no doubt. Yeah. I slept on the Acropolis one night. You did? Why? Yeah, I snuck up there. Yeah, the uh, the flight came in very late at night, one thirty at night, and so you know I got into town, got into Athens, and then I, you know, looking around, I saw the Acropolis, and I was like, oh, I'm gonna go up there, you know, that that would be a good place to go. So I went and got up around, I don't know, coincidentally, sort of a part of the Acropolis that's you don't really have to, you know, climb that much to get up on it. So yeah. I hid my backpack and uh, scurried on up and wandered around the Parthenon and the Temple to Nike and this and that. And it was a beautiful night. Moonlit. All by yourself? Yeah, all by myself and stayed up all night. And then in the morning, the sun came up and then people came up also and they saw me. <laughs> and they were like, you can't be here come with me and i think they were debating whether they should call the cops and sort of like do a whole number on me um although i think they weren't really taking it you know weren't going to take it that far and then you know they said leave you know leave and they were kind of somewhat i don't know they were a little dismissive of me i mean there i was i felt like i'd um you know really hit hit the high note you know like <laughs> this is living but they were disdainful of me for having done that anyway maybe, maybe sparrow's group had heard about this <laughs> yeah maybe i was demonstrating against sam <laughs> yeah so the uh the dead a dead body revenge is not injury i think sparrow hit it on hit the nail on the head really? i uh Without even realizing it, perhaps, um, <laughs> as I read this proverb, I'm thinking it is about the active life. It's uh, doing your work, whether it involves revenging this or getting involved with that politically while you're alive, not deferring that. Mm. Uh-huh. Like, but, uh, get I, revenge I, while the getting is good. I don't know. Uh, that's what comes to mind if I'm going to read it, think about it impressionistically. But a Blake scholar would be a better person to ask. Yeah, know. perhaps. I mean, I have slightly a different take on it. And that is that he's kind of pointing toward the emptiness of revenge. Uh, mm. That a dead body, we all end up, I mean, you know, podcast, you know, video listeners, we all end up as a, as a, as a corpse. Um, and so revenge, if we're all just going to be a dead body in the end, is meaningless. You know, like a dead body, revenge is not injury because 
you know, mm. revenge no longer, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. I like that reading. Mm. It's kind of Christian. And it's a little bit like, you know, what we've quoted from our Lord Jesus, uh, you know, let the dead bury the dead. And it's also a little bit reminiscent of uh, of William Blake of the um, the worm not minding you know drive drive oh yeah yeah no drive a cart over the bones of the dead oh yeah yeah that theme of the dead that they keep reappearing in these proverbs mm-hmm. even the cut worm forgives the plow which almost via it's almost uh, what's the word uh, is the opposite thought of uh, a dead body revenges not injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, Except that, the, uh, you know, it, and we did touch on this, but it did occur to me subsequently that, you know, because I've been doing more gardening, you know, it's springtime and stuff, and I've chopped <laughs> up a couple of worms, and I realized that in that act, I'm actually um, providing them the opportunity for transformation, for you know, becoming two worms because they are capable of that form of scientific term that'll come to me at some point of... Parthenogenesis or whatever the word is. Yeah, yeah. He's very interested in the worm. And Mm -hmm. I know that the uh, poem from The Songs of Innocence, The Sick Rose, Mm. features um, a worm. And I, I do, I can recite the poem. Would you like to hear it? Yeah. The sick rose, O rose, thou art sick, the invisible worm that flies in the night in the howling storm, has found out thy bed of crimson joy, and his dark secret love does thy life destroy. Hmm. The worm has a morbid association in that poem. A morbid Mm -hmm. association. Well, I mean, there's just a... The agent that takes life, right? Yeah, but he—he's kind of the hero of the poem. The uh, the worm. The worm has a dark secret love, which is uh, mysterious and kind of compelling, as opposed to the rose, which is just beautiful and transient. It's it's a, it's a little unclear what the what the role of that is. Maybe that's just true of all great literature that the. The villains are are also sympathetic. There are no real villains, certainly in these proverbs. It, I mean, I think that's kind of what we're struggling with is in this this proverb that we're talking about now uh, is uh, it's it's so uh, it, it's so multivalent. A dead body revenges not injuries. It's it's very unclear. Uh, is he in favor of dead bodies? Is he in favor of revenge? Is he appalled by injuries? Mm. You know, it can be kind of read in so many different ways that it, you know, it, it almost mm. immobilizes the mind. The one way in which it could be read is from the perspective of a organized crime capo who <laughs> might say, you know, to one of his lieutenants, a dead body revenges not injuries. Right. Namely, you know, this guy wants revenge for our having done this or that to his friend or family. And uh, so eh, we should turn him into a dead body because then he's not going to be, reve- you know, he won't seek revenge. Dead men tell no tales is the uh, kind of more common proverb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Farrow, in terms of the infinite semantic possibilities, 
all the poetic meanings that you were alluding to. It's, it's interesting to point out that the sick rose is in the songs of innocence and not in the songs of experience. So oh, that, oh, that, that poem is in the songs of innocence. Correct. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. It's, it's in the, you know, it's in the songs of innocence. Just and it's a, and it's a <laughs> sick rose that's being destroyed by the worm. It's not an innocent, pure, blooming rose. It's a sick rose. Except that the worm is also an agent of healing is also an agent of health to the rose, namely because the worm under the ground turns it and opens it up and oxygenates and et cetera, et cetera. But um, this is a flying worm. This is a weird flying worm. It's an invisible flying worm that's nocturnal. <laughs> nocturnal. Well, the, um, the Old English word for dragon is worm. Oh, hmm. I'm starting to think maybe it's a penis, you know. That's yeah, the howling storm at night, the mention of a bed of crimson joy. It's probably um, the um, rupturing of the um, hymen. <laughs> that's one possible interpretation. Some sort of sexual act that's regenerative but has a, um, a violence to it. Hmm. Maybe it restores the rose. The rose is sick previously, and the worm. But no, the worm does thy life destroy. Yeah, let's not get carried away with the greatness of the penis here. <laughs> Even though we're three horny men, it's not fair to the poem to be too pro-penis. Yeah. I was reading this book about euphemisms that some friend of mine, my friend Eli, found in the garbage or found lying on a stoop in Brooklyn. And it said that the word rooster is a euphemism because Americans were so appalled by the word cock that they invented this new word, fake word, rooster, as a synonym for cock. So they never had to say cock. But I think I'm allowed to say cock is a word for the previous word for rooster. I can't imagine that that is illegal. In yeah, rooster so. is such a um, diminution. You know, cock is like it actually, you actually feel a little bit of the metal. Whereas rooster, it limits what the cock is to just being something, something that roosts. And do cocks actually, even roost? I mean, do cocks roost? I mean, hens roost, don't they? Yeah, I thought it's hens that roost. I have no idea what cocks do at night. I would imagine that they somehow have a place to sleep. They're hope. like you at the uh, Acropolis. They just kind of wander around until they fall asleep. Yeah, wander around looking at beautiful things and uh, catching the view. I was guarding the Acropolis that night. Well, you know, pretty much everybody who has to deal with tourists comes to hate them. It's just the nature of human life. And it's something I've thought a lot about Paris, that Paris is a, a city of people who hate tourists, and the gods have condemned them to have the most tourists of any city per capita in the world. And that's one reason they're all miserable. Maybe they don't have them now with the... In New York City, there seems to be zero tourists pretty much this whole year. Yeah, that uh, for that reason, the, some of my friends are having weekends, um, getaway weekends at hotels. In oh, New yeah? York. 
see where you can get a really nice room for 80 bucks a night at this point. But you have to live next door to homeless people. Um, not all of them. I mean, there's <laughs> there. I live in a neighborhood where there's a fair a fair amount of uh, homeless individuals who have been directed into the neighborhood uh, over the pandemic from um, different parts of the city. And at the Lucerne, at the Lucerne on Seventy yeah. Ninth uh, Street was uh, yeah. And there was a public outcry. And um, by a lot of, like, liberal, quote-unquote liberal folks along West End and Riverside that uh, succeeded in getting them um, expelled from the neighborhood. <laughs> wow. Maybe one should say formerly liberal. What is it, the not-in-my-backyard liberal type? The, the neo yeah. that the Cornell West rightfully complains about. Yeah. Ooh. What do they say? A, a conservative so, is the liberal who's been mugged by reality. It's a ooh. famous line, like... Once you, you know, you're all in favor of housing the homeless until they're three blocks from your house. I experienced, a, I mean, I, as, as liberal Catholics, we're all about um, helping the poor and giving to soup kitchen. Both Elisa and I have volunteered over the years. Um, but when the folks moved to our neighborhood, especially with a relatively small daughter, there were a few moments that I found pretty sketchy. Mm. And I felt I felt tested. Like I didn't. I felt um, not as charitable because I, I guess I felt mugged on some level by quality of life issues. Yeah, some friend of mine was talking to me about it. Who lives in Brooklyn? Lives in some weird neighborhood where, you know, it's basically kind of a working class neighborhood. Maybe Sunset Park or South Slope or something. But the, there's a lot of boutique hotels now all over the city. And then in the pandemic, they all closed and got filled with homeless people. And and this person was really felt very invaded by it. And yeah, that's and it's noisy. It's, it's this sort of an air of danger about it. Yeah. You know that William Blake was extremely was poor. Mm. He was. Yeah. Um, he, he faced worked. real um, struggles. Yeah. With getting by economically. And, you know, there were periods in which he had kind of his own house and stuff, but he was also a period of time kind of wandering from roost to roost. And <laughs> um, I, I think that's important to keep in mind. Also, you know, another thing is that hygiene in the early 19th century mm. was such that, and also changing clothes, washing clothes, you know, these. This didn't happen as as frequently as it does in our time. And oh, so, right. you know, if William Blake were to, you know, you know, um, catch you on the corner as you're, um, you know, going off to um, get some groceries, you would be, <laughs> you know, he would smell. You'd be like, oh, whoa, like that. And also he'd be dirty. Thing to keep in mind. He was a very big man. Oh, yeah? He's apparently quite corpulent. Huh. So he wasn't that broke that he was starving to death. Maybe that. Maybe um, this was toward the end of his life when he was in a period of, where he, when he was flush comparatively to previous. Mm-hmm. I'm just reading on Wikipedia about his death, since we're talking so much about death. It says, Catherine, I guess his wife, yeah. paid for Blake's funeral with money lent to her. 
Blake's body was buried in a plot shared with others five days after his death. At the dissenter's burial ground in Bun Hill Fields, in what's now Islington. So, uh, in other words, he couldn't afford his own grave. <laughs> That's how the broke dissent, he was. The dissenter's graveyard? That's intriguing. The dissenter's burial ground. The dissenter's burial ground. Were those religious heretics within the Church of England, the dissenters who, who were tolerated but sort of marked? Yeah, I, that's what I'm. I don't. It doesn't explain it. It just, I think, explains what a dissenter is. Because but, the uh, the Church of England, right, uh, theologically or and politically, decided that they were not going to um, turn religious matters into uh, violent acts. That they were going to be relatively open and ecumenical with within Christianity. To um, except they didn't. They wanted the Catholics out of the, out of the picture. Right, Catholics were really a threat to them. Well, they can't have felt too um, happy about a man who was writing in advocacy of hellship. Yeah, it was pro-hell. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. If anyone read his works... Well, William Wordsworth said, there was no doubt that this poor man was mad, but there is something in the madness of this man, which interests me more than the sanity of Lord Byron and Walter Scott. So that's uh, Wordsworth, who's right after him. You know, he's, if you count Blake as the first romantic, Wordsworth is the second romantic, and he says that Blake's crazy. Blake um, reported several, and I alluded to this last conversation, he reported several mystical visions of uh, that continued to have reverberations through his um, entire life. And one was at the deathbed of his beloved brother. He was very close with his brother. His hmm. brother died young. And Blake um, communed with the spirit of his brother in the brother's, um, in by the brother's deathbed. And then huh. there's another um, spiritual, mystical vision he had of a tree full of um, some sort of group of angels or celestial winged beings were flying upward. And then after that, in his life, he would hear the uh, voice of his deceased brother, that he, he had these auditory encounters with his brother um, who helped guide some of his uh, artistic choices and um, was, was responsible for suggesting the method that that we associate with Blake of the engravings, the engraved poems, with the um, engraved scenes, the uh, the artifact. His brother. His brother um, helped him devise that method after the brother had died through mystical oh. mystical conversation. Huh. He 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 felt the voice of his brother through his life in a very real, tangible, auditory way. And this book we're reading from, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, has all sorts of visions in it. I don't know how uh, real they are. They're all entitled A Memorable Fancy. Uh, one of them begins, I was in a printing house in hell and saw the method in which knowledge is transmitted from generation to generation. In the first chamber was a dragon man clearing away the rubbish from a cave's mouth within a number 
of dragons were hollowing the cave. I don't know if these are real visions he had, fancies. I think he, I see what he's doing as somewhat ambiguous, that he's, even the fact that he calls them a memorable fancy, which suggests they might be concocted. And and these proverbs, which he says are the proverbs given to him by demons, they, they're hard to pin down what he's, uh, you know, I think they're deliberately or undeliberately uh, can be taken in lots of different ways. I think that is part of it, yeah. I mean, this current uh, proverb that we're talking about reminds me of this quote from Norman Vincent Peale. You know, Norman Vincent Peale, the great minister who wrote The Power of Positive Thinking, the great kind of apostle uh, in America, mid-century, 20th century America of uh, so-called positive thinking. And he says, I know a place in the Bronx where there's two million people who are never unhappy. And that is Woodlawn, Woodlawn Cemetery. So in other words, uh, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're dead, you're never unhappy. You know, life has a certain uh, curse of unhappiness with it. Get used to it. It's part of life. It's nothing to be ashamed of. And, and this uh, proverb, which is like a dead body, revenge is not injuries. Like, well, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be perfectly Christ-like, be dead. If you want to be alive, then uh, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to you're going to get pissed off at people and blame them. And that's just accept that. Don't uh, blame yourself because you're no, not as bl- perfect as a as a corpse. So you uh, that's not Peel isn't saying that. No, no, um, Peel just said. You want, yeah, yeah, yeah. you want to know a place yeah, with think, two million happy people, two billion people without problems, go to Woodlawn Cemetery. Yeah, I think that's an interesting reading. So you're dead, but the dead body is a, is just a is just a corpse. It's just the meat. So yeah. I'm not sure in this case Blake is necessarily pointing it to that. Except I do feel that you know it corresponds to my feeling which is the emptiness of revenge, mm-hmm. of um, all injuriousness that we feel toward, I guess, self or ego. Well, revenge is a negative term. Yeah. I mean, there's pretty much nobody is in favor of revenge. The people like Hitler, for example, who uh, was uh, trying to revenge the uh, German people who suffered under the uh, Treaty of Versailles. He didn't call it revenge. He had some noble, he said he needed Lebensraum. He had all sorts of, he was going to liberate the Ukraine, you know. He had all sorts of noble, nobody says I'm out for revenge. George W. Bush, when he attacked, Afghanistan. He didn't say we want revenge for September 11th. He said that we're bringing them democracy. So revenge is always negative. I think it's it's a pejorative term. Mm-hmm. I mean, it does come out of the Germanic ethic 
um, uh, you know, the idea of the wergeld is the man as the as the man's weight in gold, which huh. you would pay to get out of a feud. So feud is a revenge structure. Um, That's but, what the word revenge comes from, the, the German? I don't, well, feud, to be in a state of feud is one where there's a, um, geez, you get, uh, antagonism between two groups, you know, like families or, you know, with individuals. What's it called when you have like a running battle with an individual? Um, you know, where they've killed your brother and then. Vendetta? Vendetta, yeah. That's a that's re, that's another word for revenge. I think that this proverb has a companion. I think this proverb is meant to be read with the proverb that comes immediately after. Oh wow! Oh, let's that's hear a it. opinion. And that is the most sublime act is to set another before you. Now listen to the two together. Huh. Body revenges not injuries. The most sublime act is to set another before you. Huh. Ah, uh, yeah, that's a couplet. You know, that's the um, that does seem to be uh, interfacing with each other. Yeah, I think it is a couplet, and you, you hear it sonically and rhythmically. Assuming, of course, that set another before you means to put another person's needs ahead of your own, not just in some literal way to take a person and put them in front of you so you can look at them, <laughs> or for some other reason. Yes. I would also say, Andrew, I think that the next proverb is also linked. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And then I think we, then, you know, that closes a, a, a more full utterance or saying. Um, and a lot of architecture to these three proverbs together, I think. Hmm. Would you like to read that one, Sparrow? Oh, yeah. If the fool would persist in his folly, he would become wise. Nice. Yeah. Huh? That's the really like, famous one. Yeah. The wise, that there's some convergence, like it's the top of the mountain, you know, that everything converges to this, hmm. to wise, and what Blake may mean by that. It's interesting, it's also... uh it seems progressive, you know, there's the dead body, and then there's put another before you, mm. and then there's this, the fool and the wise person as uh, as some kind of um, progression, you know, as some kind of track that you can follow and have life experience and be vengeful and then learn mm. another way of being and that if the that even the uh person who is vengeful and seeks out vendetta and lives a life of um almost compelling injury even if he persists in that path or they persist in that path they mm. too will become wise mm -hmm. it seems one could argue to be sort of a an argument for action rather than passivity. Mm. I think that's and my my reading of Blake is that he had this transvaluation of values and 
he thought that God was really the devil, the devil was really God, and the devil is full of action, intensity, and uh, passion, and uh, God is full of passivity, forgiveness, kindness, but a kind of stasis doesn't almost like a like a dead body in a way mm. and and Blake seems to be saying we need to live our lives not not retreat from the world but not be dead bodies but uh soar with our own wings to go back mm-hmm. to the one before this uh revenge injuries join mobs that are tearing down uh prisons and and eventually through action we will learn because action i'm not saying that blake believed mm-hmm. in the law of karma but he seems to have sort of intuited something like that i mean that the law of karma is is the same idea as the fool who persists in his folly will become wise mm-hmm. basically the law of karma teaches you if you're selfish, if you're small-minded, if you're angry all the time, you reap that. If mm-hmm. you serve others, you reap that. And you just slowly, slowly, over the course of thousands of lifetimes, learn that it's like uh, the way the, the law works, the law, the, the criminal law works. If you steal something... Usually, you're going to eventually steal enough stuff, enough times you're a thief, you probably get caught and put in prison. If you Mm. don't steal, if you work, you get paid. That's like the law of karma as it manifests in kind of capitalist society. So Mm -hmm. you, you learn gradually over time. Maybe, like one time I was, there was a guy handing out the, flyers for the strip club on 43rd street and 9th avenue we got to talking and he was a guy who'd been a criminal his whole life and pretty much his entire life he he had this gun that he spoke about very warmly he never used it but he sort of loved his gun and he would rob some place get caught go to prison do five or six years get out rob something else go back to prison over and over again. He was in his 50s, I think. And he finally kind of learned his lesson. He was so happy that he'd gone straight. He had this straight job handing out flyers for a strip club. He'd finally overcome his karma of being a, a thief and, and constantly being punished. He, he'd learned the his lesson. The system worked. The system worked, yeah. The fool who persisted in his folly became wise. <laughs> And you see somebody on the street handing out flyers for a strip club, and you're like, this guy is a perverse bastard, you know, like he's a, he's just a lowest of the rung of society. And then it turned out this guy was kind of like an angel who learned great wisdom from his mistakes. He, he was lucky in one lifetime, assuming he still stayed on the straight and narrow. To uh, to learn, and yeah. that's that's I, how it works. Uh, I like how Blake has that practical quality uh, uh, that he, he's interested in um, how people are in the world, and yeah. right in in um, 
there are a lot of great social reflections. The art, his vision of things, definitely extends to the realm of action, being, human behavior in the world. Yeah, I mean, for me, and sort of touching on that, it seems to me that Blake is advocating that the best means by which to worship the creator, um, you know, if one, you know, wants to objectify or, you know, have kind of a duality thing, the best way to, to, uh, praise, to worship the creator is through cre- what he's created, is through creation. And mm-hmm. so it seems to me that this idea of the active life um, kind of corresponds or rhymes a little bit with that. Yeah. Mm. That we just really explore creation and test our bounds mm. and test our consciousness and test our sensorium and have mm. varied experiences and be as full as possible. You know, to, to, uh, uh, <laughs> who's the creepy DOJ guy, attorney general? John Ashcroft. Ashcroft, man, get up at 6.30, you know, meet up for the prayer breakfast, you know, uh, (laughs) soar like the eagle. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) No, but build your wings. I would go back to that, you know, build your wings, build your being. Yeah, and I was thinking about this book here um, that Station Hill Press published called Being Formed, Thinking Through Blake's Milton. Hmm. written by Mark Bratcher. And it's all about um, what Sam is describing in terms of um, being and becoming. Um, Even though we're born into this finite condition, biologically, there are limits, right, to what's going to happen to us and our trajectories. Within that finitude, there is um, room for re-altering. I'm just going to... in, in formation and recreation. I'm just going to read two sentences from the book. Mm-hmm. Existence, then, is inescapably formed finite and thus envious. But the particular forms which existence takes are not absolutely unalterable, although the alteration cannot be accomplished quickly or easily. Since mm-hmm. individual existence is formed, it can also be reformed. In fact, human existence is actually a continuous process of reformation, both um, ontologically and, yeah, and then it goes on from there. It gets a little academic, but it's interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You like that book, Sam? Yeah, and it's also incredibly a great book to dip in and out of. It's very quotable, very Mm -hmm. well written, and very granular. Without, uh, I don't think it strays too far into the into academic language, although it is a classic of Blake's study. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. At some point, at some point, I'll just tell you, I'll, I'm going to get George's transmission on the Proverbs of Hell, maybe George at the Carson. end of this series. Yeah, because George, in many ways, one of the... Meh, George doesn't really have any walls, so we're not going to talk to talk about him in those terms. But one of the cardinal structures of George's poetics, and certainly a poetics that's an active one, is um, Blake and is the Proverbs of Hell specifically this text. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. 
could you record him talking about it and put it into our podcast? Well, now we're going to do a whole other series. You know, I have this series that I want to do that is George and Chuck talking to each other for 10 hours. Just do 10, 10 sessions. I'm kind of struck suddenly by the conditional uh, verb in this new proverb. If the fool would persist in his folly, he would become wise rather than the fool. I, I guess I sort of remembered it in my mind as the fool who persists in his folly becomes wise. Will but, become wise. No, the fool who persists in his folly will become be, uh, you see, you have to have the would become. Will become. The fool who persists in his folly will become wise. That's perfectly acceptable grammatically. Uh-huh. But it's not, a, it doesn't sound quite as good. Maybe. Also, I mean, I think Blake reiterated this idea in other words many times. I don't know. The uh, palace of uh, the uh, the road of excess leads will lead to the palace, to the of, palace of wisdom. Hmm. Would be one. Although that's not so, quite the same. I don't see that as the same idea because uh, I don't think folly is the same as excess. Folly is all sorts of pro- mistakes, not just the mistake of excessiveness. To my mind, anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, it is a perfect articulation, as you pointed out, Sparrow, of the of reincarnation, of metapsychosis, of you know the whole Hindu idea that we began with. Really, you know, the human mind awoke in India. Although it's not exactly what my guru suggests. My guru doesn't tell you to pursue your folly. I mean, my guru tells you to follow the moral principles of yama and niyama which are kind of like the 10 commandments you're 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 not enjoined by uh, i think most mystics to uh to do whatever the hell you want to do <laughs> yeah to these are all concepts fool you know but there are certain um path there are certain form there's certain game rules you know there's certain structure to the path and if that path is attractive to one one should follow it because Mm -hmm. the fool uh you know that would persist in his folly will become wise well maybe even the paths of renunciation will lead to wisdom well that's is that a folly i don't know i mean of course all it all depends on how you define folly but um i i'm not sure i agree with this I'm not sure, you know, should Donald Trump just keep uh, being a kind of con artist, hustler and fascist? Should he keep doing that more and more and more? Will he eventually reach to wisdom? I'm not sure. I mean, in the world that we live in, you rarely see see this. I mean, that's why I told that story about the guy I met handing out flyers, because it was a case of someone who did do that. But I think... In general, our experience is the opposite. The fools who persist in their folly become bigger fools. <laughs> and cause a lot of trouble and do a lot of damage um, and make it make things really difficult for um, everybody, for around, you know, everybody yeah. around them. Yeah. I mean, it's in the long term. 
if karma is true, this is true. But in the short term, it's usually not true. But I, I suppose that's... I think that's why there's a DOJ, isn't it? Why? To... It's just because of the, you know, long-term things are all going to work out, or they won't. You know, we're going to end up in, I forget exactly the time. I think it's like a 100 billion years. <laughs> you know, everything will be ash, you know, or sort of this cold, you know, dark ash. Kind of a soup. You know, yeah, yeah. So, um, but near term, like within a lifetime, if you have people that are persisting in their folly, and those follies are not self-directed, but, you know, are hurting other people. That's why we, um, you know, sometimes choose to exile them or um, punish them, you know, have certain laws, you know, that relate to those human follies. Yeah, folly is a not funny all of word. Not have I that mean, much patience, as you say. I mean, folly is, it's a little unclear. Folly is a little more of an innocent word. Like if you say the criminal who persists in his crime will become wise, that sounds impossible. Yeah, I, word, I agree that the word folly is interesting. I'd be interested in understanding better what its particular shape was, its meaning shape, its semantics in the 18 whatever you know 10 you know around 1800 well 1789 yeah it's it's strange to think that this is kind of parallel to the constitution this document the constitution which we talk a lot about in america and whether we should strictly um, interpret it or not is uh, it's a, still a living document for us and it's, it's simultaneous with this strange that, document <clears throat> That's, uh, for me personally, on the same level of madness as, I, I, it's difficult for me to admit this, but religions of the book. What is? The Constitution? Yeah, the idea that the Constitution is written in a certain way and that um, everything is uh, shaped according to those exact words and the limitations of those times. The Founding Fathers never, in their wildest dreams, intended to lock in. You know, they understood that generations and time and exigencies of invention and so on and so forth, you know, will necessitate its not necessarily transformation, but evolution. And, you know, to seek a more perfect union, you know, and we have processes for bringing that about. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.